Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Hall of Fame baseball writer Jason Stark. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, we sit down with a national baseball writer and a man that's covered a lot of Boones throughout the years. Maybe <laughs> I, I, I think he's a little too too young of a man to cover Gramps, Ray Boone, but uh, he's covered a lot of us. Yeah, In right. 2019, he won the Spink Award. Ladies and gentlemen, Hall of Fame writer, Jason Stark. Jason, thanks for coming on the program. Brett Boone, I am honored to be here. Thanks for inviting me, man. This is very cool for me. Uh, you've been covering the game for a long time. You broke in in the 70s. What's your favorite generation of baseball? <laughs> uh, I mean, I barely broke in in the 70s, but yeah, that's true. Uh, I remember the, uh, like, I don't think it gets any better than watching like 12-year-old Brett Boone and how old was your brother? Like, running around vet stadium, hanging out in the clubhouse with those great Phillies teams. Uh, the, those are my, those are my first big memories of the Boone family. Um, my favorite generation of baseball though, you know, it honestly might be what we're watch, watching right now. And that's, you know, that's no insult to anyone that's come before. It's just, I don't know. You tell me, have you, do you ever remember this many awesome young players, like 23 years old and younger, coming into the sport at the same time and doing what they're doing? Without a doubt, no. I think, you know, my take's going to be a little bit different than yours. The physicality of the players today is undeniable. It, it's it's not really debatable on the level of athlete I'm seeing. And, and I did a little time with the, with the A's a few years back. And I started to know there as a special assistant, I started to notice the athlete coming in from the draft. <laughs> and, you know, Jason, I wasn't always the tallest player. I'm still not. But, <laughs> but when I'd get, you know, the things that, that would hit me were after the game, you know, on the road, getting into the, getting into the uh, hotel, and just getting on the elevator going up to my room and I'd stand around, there'd be a lot of starting pitchers in there and I'd look around and that's when it would hit me like, wow, I, I don't realize how short I am compared to the average major league <laughs> pitcher. And at the time it was probably six, three or six, four. I'll tell you now you've got six, four guys playing second base, which is unheard of. You walk into that Yankees locker room. It's like walking into an NFL locker room, the physicality of these kids. And I think it's just, the technology and the training, these kids are starting at, at 12 years old now where yeah. I didn't start hitting the weight room till you know, midway through my career. So that being said, yes, the physicality, the skill, uh, I, I watch, I was very, always very hard on second base and I was very critical of, of the actual art of, of second base defense. And I only had a handful of guys that I really looked to and said, he's good, he's good. I look all over that field now, and there's so much talent. They're all really good. Uh, the hitters, the physicality of the hitters is great. The great players are still great. I have a little bit of a problem with what these players are told, how they're brought up, what is important. You know, the walk, controlling, the, controlling the strike zone, that's important. But 
home run is being rewarded and pushed power. Everybody, the one thing I've learned in this game, everybody's not a power hitter. And it doesn't matter what you do. You're either a power hitter or you're not. So if we're telling these young players coming up in the ranks that power is essential, well, you've got a bunch of guys that aren't aren't power guys trying to create that power instead of just being a good hitter, having a good approach, playing the game correctly. I think we've lost that. You know, we had Albert Bell on the on the podcast recently, and it was really interesting how he talked about hitting. Here's a guy that's hitting 40, 50 homers a year. And he said, Brett, what drives me crazy about the game is there's a runner on second and there's no outs in a close game. And there's not even an effort at all to move that runner, set up a sack fly and put your team ahead or tie. Uh, I'm with him on that. Uh, that being said, I, I'm never going to go. I'm never going to be that guy. That's oh, my generation was the best, and you know, no, it's. I think we're best served to to take the gener- my generation, take my my father's generation, take the current generation, take the best of all three, and combine it and see what we have. We can come up with because I'll tell you what, my my son's just starting his pro career now. He's an A ball. And I can learn some things for him. He, he does some things. That I go, I wish I'd have known about that. That's a cool idea. So we can learn from them, but without a doubt, they can learn from us. And I, and I think that combination's in there somewhere. And I think you're going to see the game start to come back and mesh that analytical generation with the, the good old fashioned baseball generation of being a good baseball man and thinking your way through the game. Definitely that still exists. But I'm with you on the young, uh, the young talent, the Sotos of the world, Acuna, Vladdy. What Otani's doing is is off the charts. I I I've become a fan now. I I just want to wrap him in bubble wrap and, and just get through <laughs> the season because it's like, wow, there's so many things going on, man. Just don't get hurt. Just do this because yeah. it's it's something so special that we're watching right now. Yeah. Uh, so there's my take on today. It's a little <laughs> long. We're, this is Jason Stark. This isn't the Brett Boom. People can hear me talk all the time, but but that's kind of my take. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I remember how you used to talk about playing with Ichiro. And, you know, after that All-Star game last week, uh, I went back to my hotel and I started thinking about this, uh, about what we're watching in Otani. And I thought they j- – they just changed the rules of baseball for this guy. You know, they created a thing. The, the, the first ever starting pitcher slash DH slash leadoff dude, right? Like that, that thing never existed before, but there was just a recognition in the sport that this is so amazing. We need to do that for him. And so I agree with what you're saying. Like the game isn't like the, the, the way the game is played right now does not equal the way the game was played and mass back when you played, but the talent and the, just the, the groundbreaking stuff that we're seeing just blows my mind. And I, like, I don't think we should ever lose sight of how amazing it is. Oh, I, I, I don't think, I, I mean, it is such a job as a as a major league baseball hitter on a daily basis. There's so much that goes into that, from the prep work to the swing, and you got to tweak your swing here and here, and you're watching video. Couple that with 
Okay. And by the way, you pitch every fifth day. So you've got to get your <laughs> pitchers work in too. You got to do your job exercises. So maintaining two different jobs. I don't even know. I don't even know what to compare it to. I mean, is he an all pro inside linebacker and the quarterback? I have no idea. Is he Gretzky <laughs> and he's Grant Fuhr? Yeah. And, and it's not like he's doing this. I, I think he'd be the MVP, Jason, if he was doing it at a solid everyday player level. If he were the fourth starter, put up fourth starter numbers, and he was the seven-hole hitter playing every day, I think you're the MVP right there because nobody can do that. But the fact that he's do- leading the league in home runs, you know, until recently his ERA was in the twos, and he's their number one starter. Uh, he's doing it at – not only is he doing the, the two different jobs, but he's doing it at a legitimate all-star level. That's hey, that's mind-blowing to me. Brad, he's on pace for 60 homers and 100, and ex, 100 extra base hits. And he's – by the way, he's got this hobby where when he pitches, he's got a better strikeout rate than Garrett Cole. And he's a real person. <laughs> like, we are watching this in real life on our planet. That just, again, it just amazes me that this is really freaking happening. And, and I don't know if you see what I see. I, I see something when I look at him now. He He's finally starting it. He kind of knows what he's doing. I mean, I don't even know if he believes what he's doing at the level he's doing it. But I can see it in his demeanor. It's like, you know, I'm leading off. I'm pitching. I'm striking people out. <laughs> and I'm hitting bombs. And I'm just going to roll with it because it's never been done. And there's that joy that I can see in his in yeah. his eyes. Like, I know I'm doing something special. It's not ego-driven. It's not a arrogant thing that's coming across. But it's kind of that wry smile of, this is unbelievable. And I'm going to enjoy <laughs> this ride. And I'm okay. telling you, as a fan, I'm a fan. And it's like if Otani, you know, uh, Mark Gubaza is always talking about Otani. It's his favorite, and and he'll let me know. You know, I'll check Twitter or the uh, oh Otani's pitching tonight, and I I seriously go out of my way to I got I got to check out see what Otani does. You know, I loved about two months ago. I think it was the sixth inning. He, he given up one or two runs, maybe. And they come out to make a pitching change. They just send him to center field. Right and it's like, oh, Kelly Lee, just go play center and, and I, for the rest of the day. It's awesome. I agree. Hey, I got a question for you. If Ichiro had wanted to pitch, we know he had the arm strength. Could could Ichiro have been any semblance of this if that's what he decided he wanted to do with his life? I don't think so. And, and I don't think so for the reason of his of his uh, his stature. It's very rare to see somebody with ego or with uh, Ichiro's body type that can hold up to the rigors of being a starting pitcher. I have no doubt because mm-hmm. of Ichiro's arm strength that he could have done it on a real, real part time, maybe coming in relief, uh, but to do it in a day in a day out basis. No, it, because Ichiro was so meticulous, and and you talk about preparing to hit. We all do that on a high level, but Ichiro. I, I don't think he would have enough time in the day because he wanted to be perfect. Everything he did. Now I wouldn't put that past Ichiro, but to do it at this level, I, I just don't think his stature would lend himself to be able to do that. You know, every fifth day and, and uh, your body hold up. I mean, you, you look at the, you know, the gold standard for pitchers, you know, you got to be six, three and you know, you, the, they're usually big and strong and thick and, and each year rolls more out of the, the Hudson 
the old Oakland A starter, uh, and even smaller in stature than that. But but Hudson, I think, was a an exception, not the rule. If if that makes sense, it does make sense. Um, I would have taken each your own relief once a week. I think it'd have been fun to watch. <laughs> I, I don't watch that, <laughs> but we didn't get to vote. No. All right. I want to learn about a young Jason Stark. You're born and raised in, in Northeast Philly. I grew up in Jersey, just over the bridge. Mm-hmm, right. uh, what were you like as a little kid? Did you, uh, you, you love baseball from the get go? Yeah. Like, you know, here, here's the crazy thing about my life is I, I got to do exactly what I always dreamed of doing from the time I was old enough to dream about doing anything. And that is the truth. Like I never really thought I was going to be a baseball player or any kind of player, even though I was a pretty good athlete as a kid. I, I, I honestly wanted to be a sports writer. Yeah. It seems crazy, but my mom uh, was a great writer, you know, as she worked for a newspaper in Philadelphia and then she had a ton of writer friends. Uh, my parents did. Uh, and she, she freelanced for her whole life wrote all kinds of stuff and met all kinds of people. And so I, I, you know, always got the, I got the love of writing early on from her. Um, The sports part, the baseball part, I'm not really sure where that came from. Like I did, like I grew up in a household that likes sports, but this was not the Boone house, (laughs) you know, wasn't the Ripken house. Uh, They were like, my dad would make fun of me if he'd catch me watching a game which was all the time he'd say jason i saw that game 20 years ago and it was his joke that i spent too much time caring about stuff that wasn't really important but it was important to me i know you can relate and so honestly when i would go to games as a kid i would take my binoculars i'd point them at the press box and try to figure out what the heck everybody was doing up there because that's what i wanted to do um, I'm glad I didn't find out till a later age or I might, <laughs> might have scared the hell out of me. But th- this is this is all part of my journey. For whatever reason, I got this thought in my head. I got this fever that I wanted to be a sports writer. I especially wanted to be a baseball writer. Uh, there's a story I told in my Hall of Fame speech, which was actually two years ago today as we're recording this, um, about there's a – on my wall – in my office, there's a photo of my sister and me. We're walking home from school. As best we can figure it, I was in fifth grade. She was in fourth grade. And underneath it is this little composition that she wrote for her class. And it really says this. It says, if you ever want to know anything about baseball, you should ask my brother. And it's, you know, it's hanging right by the door of my office. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll be walking out that door and I'll see it and I'll stop and I'll, I'll look at it and I'll think, oh my God, how did this happen? You know, like, how did I get to live this life that I always dreamed about living? I don't know the answer, but I do recognize that when you're somebody who gets to live your dream, you're one of the luckiest people in the world. And that's me. Well, I think it's so cool. And for me, I get to do a lot. I get to do a lot of shows with a lot of fun guys and and interesting personalities. But I'll tell you, the writers and and the sportscasters are really interesting to me because I was a kid that, you know, since I can remember, all I wanted to do was was play baseball. And when when I'd run out of people that would 
you know, that were tired of putting <laughs> up with me, the garage was my best friend. And I would throw <laughs> that ball off the garage door for hours and hours. And you asked me in fifth grade, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play in the big leagues for 15, 20 years. I, I don't know yet. And people would say, no, but really, what, what are you talking about? How <laughs> right. can you possibly question me? But then I get to talk to guys like you and, and Kirchin, who we just had. I talked to Jim Bowden. He was the same way. Dick Vitale yeah. told me, Booney, as a kid, I just knew I wasn't going to be good enough, but I had to do something in the game. Rick Riz, you know, the voice of the Mariners. I had him on recently, and he talked Great. about he talked about Brett. I would sit in my basement and I would listen to Cubs games and I would emulate and 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 mimic uh, the the great sport ca- sportscasters of the day. That's all I ever wanted to do. And as a baseball player, as a kid, I don't remember any of my friends. Maybe Aaron. Maybe Aaron a little bit because he'd sit around and he'd listen to Harry Callis and he'd do the lineups and he'd do all the. <laughs> so Aaron had a little bit, but I thought he was that weird kid. He's like, yeah, that's just my little brother. And I don't know what he's doing, <laughs> but to this day he can still do them. But I, it's oh, yeah. really interesting for me to hear. It's it's just a different take. It's a different upbringing. And to sit here and say, you always wanted to do it and you chased it and you accomplished it. it it's cool. Cause it's different. Um, yeah. When I, hey, when I was a little kid, I put out my own newspaper and I sold subscriptions to my neighbors. <laughs> I feel I, I still feel a little guilty because I probably only put out like four or five of them. So I ripped them off. But like, I don't know, somehow or other that got into my blood. I, I like still it, it's this is all. It's all one of those surreal things that just happens to human beings. Like I was possessed and I, I became this person that I imagined being so weird, so bizarre how life works out. That's, that's very cool. So you go through high school and uh, you're off to Syracuse and, yeah. and kind of Syracuse, kind of the gold standard for journalism. A lot of, you know, Costas and Ted Koppel and Tarico come out of Syracuse. Yeah, that's uh, why I went there. Yeah, tell me about those those years in college and and uh, if you ever had doubts. Uh, the I, I don't know exactly what you mean by doubts, but you know I've I, I've got a real connection to Syracuse. I've gone up there and spoken a lot of times, mentored kids who were trying to do what I do, and I you know I've told them all that like n- none of this really happens without Syracuse. And I totally get that. I, you know, you can dream all you want. You can, you can write goofy stuff in high school about whatever you want, but you got to learn how to really do it, how to really be a professional. When you go to a great communication school, I went to Newhouse and that made everything possible. I had great teachers. I was around everybody that I was around went on to work in the business. uh, And we all shared this incredible passion for it. So that was huge. The only doubt I had was whether I should really be a sports writer. Um, I, I, I sincerely went through a period where I thought I should try to do something more serious. So I decided I was going to pursue news. And I was actually the news editor of the Daily Orange, the campus paper, my last year there. And then I got a job at the Providence Journal uh, covering news, suburban news in Rhode Island. And I did that for like a year. And 
Like it was fine. I had fun. I did st- <laughs> did stuff I enjoyed and I was proud of. And you know what I what I thought like almost all the time. The only people who care about that thing I just wrote is are the people who are in it. <laughs> the people it's about. Nobody else reads it or cares about any of it. Uh, unlike when you write anything about sports, anything about baseball, like the reaction to it is like night and day between the way people react to any anything you write about their their local government or their local uh, place of like restaurant they go to or go place they go hear music what like you know what I'm saying uh no matter how imaginative I felt like I could be doing that I didn't want to do that <laughs> I, wa- I wanted to cover sports and so there was an opening in sports I applied for it uh for some reason they thought yeah, let's let's bring this guy aboard, and then the rest is just kind of history. You know, I just I was in Providence. Uh, I knew I wanted to cover baseball. I started I started just applying to other places who might want to hire me to cover baseball. And the Philadelphia Inquirer, because I came from Philadelphia, thought, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's hire him. And like the whole thing again, it, it's surreal, man. Like I didn't set out to go cover baseball in my hometown that just happened to me somehow or other um just again like this just part of this the the great fortune i've had in my life um and it started with syracuse but syracuse to providence to philadelphia that was just one path that i followed uh that turned out to be the perfect path for me and you mentioned providence so you, you were at the providence journal and you're Having a chance to cover the Red Sox a little bit. Pretty I'm, big. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, like, it's really an exaggeration to say I covered the Red Sox. <laughs> you know, they oh. they let me go write about the Red Sox every once in a while. Um, well, that I sounds covered, good. <laughs> I covered everything, man. I, I covered husband-wife golf tournaments and fencing and, like, just archery. Like, you wouldn't believe the stuff. Curly? Yeah. I did a little curling, this curling on the ice in New England. But like, yeah. I didn't, I don't want to do that. Like I loved, <laughs> I, I figured out really early on that I, that I loved writing about baseball and that became my passion to try to find a baseball writing job. So again, it was like, I'm so lucky that that happened. Like I'll tell you one thing that I did in Providence. So that uh, people still don't believe it. I, I was just young and stupid and, Back, you know, across from Fenway, there are those, like those billboards. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and one of the billboards is, it sits on top of a building, on the roof of a building across the street from Fenway. And like back before they got really security conscious, I'd sit in Fenway and I would look across the street and people were freaking watching games from that billboard. And I thought, I'm going to do that. I'm going to climb that billboard and write a story about it. <laughs> okay, so this is by far the dumbest thing I ever did because, like, you got to wriggle your way up the side of the building, which isn't very tall, and then you cl- then you got to climb the scaffolding up to this billboard. And I got just to the point where I could see over the monster, and I thought, 
I'm not going one inch farther than this because I was scared to death. But meanwhile, there's a bunch of people going right up past me, right to the top of the sign. They've got like pulleys and they're hauling cases of beer up there. This was nuts. But I did that just to write a story because <laughs> it was one day where I could write about baseball and not write about husband-wife golf tournaments. So I did that. Um what do you think? Was I? I, I no, I, I think I think in in reality, I think you're glad you did it because you have this story now. The one I thing, do. the one thing, you know, I look back at my life to this point and so many blessings and such a cool life from from childhood to to modern, you know, to 2021. But if I only have any regret and I talk to these kids all the time, that the kids that are playing now and, you know, for advice or what do you think, Brett? And I'll say, you know, the one thing I would give you as advice, do whatever you're doing, play as good as you can play. There's a lot of money out there, but stop once in a while, make a conscious effort to stop and look around and smell yeah, the right. roses. And I did that kind of towards the end when I knew it was kind of coming to an end. You know, there's something inside that kind of tells you. My legs were starting to not be what they were. That youth was leaving me. And I remember a day at Fenway because I never appreciated it. You know, I heard the stories from my grandpa. He'd tell me, oh, Brett, Fenway, Ted Williams, Gramps, whatever. I got a game to play. I got Pedro today and I got to find a way to get a, a hit and a walk. So I don't care about the, the, the you know, the history of Fenway. But in the you know early 2000s, when I knew you know the writing was on the wall, I don't know if it was going to be this year, but it, it, soon. And I made a conscious effort to kind of stop during a pitch and change or whatever day game and just look around and go, how lucky am I to be able to do – and something as players, I don't think, once again, not from an ego standpoint, but because this is what we do for a living. We put on a uniform and we play a game, and it's a really hard game. And I don't have time to sit and worry about and, and walk down, you know, these these mushy lanes about how cool it is. But later in my career, I got to do that. And, and I just kind of looked around and, and just smiled to myself like, how lucky am I to be to have been able to do this for so long? And I want to start yeah. appreciating it in the end because it is special. And it's an honor to put on a big league uniform. And it's an honor for everybody that's ever done it. And uh, so I think that story is really cool. And and considering, you know, what you do for a living and what you've done for so long, you know, uh, it makes perfect sense. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I got to do that. You know, I got to yeah. see what it was like. So I think it's a real cool thing. Well, so Providence, that, uh, so now you're getting, I, I asked you in the opening about your favorite generation. Mine is where we're going now. 79. You joined the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, and you're a beat writer for the Phillies. And uh, that's still to this day. I, I can sit there. At, those are just memories as me as a kid, dad playing whenever he'd let me come to the ballpark, which was every day, or, or I'd, I'd give him a lot of hell for that. But that's my <laughs> wheelhouse. I mean, those are the days yeah. I remember. And hanging out with Schmitty and, and Tug and, and uh, Pete and Bull. And it's like, those are such great memories heyday of philadelphia i think arguably especially around that that 80 season when the phillies win it flyers are are kicking butt sixers eagles we had ron jaworski on the program recently he talked about those years but you're getting in right at the heyday of philadelphia and you're a cub you know you this is your 
kind of your you're kind of a rookie. You did the Providence thing, but this is the first yeah, time you're you're really on the beat. And and just take me through that because I'm a kid. I'm a kid in that clubhouse. But this is your job. Take me through those years. Yeah, that was that was one special team, and I don't think that team gets enough credit for the sustained greatness. You know, um, like the, the, that greatness started before I got there. But when you start thinking about 1976 through 1983, that's eight seasons where they either won their division or easily could have won or should have won. You know, uh, won 76, 77, 78, 79, were 24 and 10, and then everybody got hurt. 80 won the World Series, 81 best team in baseball, then the strike hit. Uh, lost in a winner-take-all game in the playoffs that year. 82 were in first place with some at some point in the last three weeks. 83 went back to the World Series. That's eight years of incredible greatness with Mike Schmidt, first ballot Hall of Famer. Steve Carlton, first ballot Hall of Famer. Your dad, one of the great catchers who ever played. Pete Rose, the hit king. Uh, the, the most fun double play combination or one of the most fun double play combinations I've ever seen. Larry Boa, Manny Trio. Um, I, I, I could go on, but like the, the, the core of that team was something special. And I, I, you know, I always recognized that. I never lost sight of that. Um, hey, I, I just, you know, I love that. You and your brother were running around like you guys were fun. Like you guys, you were seriously. Uh, you made it fun. Uh, that was just part of the part of the show. I will say, it wasn't the most fun team to cover. Like I, I don't know what happened before I got there, but I walked into some pretty open tension, open hostility between the writers who covered that team, the media who covered that team, and the guys who played for that team. And I honestly don't even know what it was about, half of it. Um, but it was what it was. Like, I found a way. I, like, I would say, if you read what I wrote, if you went back and looked at it now, you'd never know how, like, what that atmosphere was like. Because I didn't want that to ever come through in my writing. Um, but <laughs> it was... It was great when the game started. It wasn't always great the, the the three hours before the game or the one hour after the game. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned. I mean, there were some characters on that team, and it. it I just oh know them God. as kids, but now you know, in adulthood, I have conversations with them, and uh, it just you know the the memories are so cool. Uh, just tug walking in and being tug and Pete over there yelling mm-hmm. across the, and you mentioned Boa and Trio. Trio, oh, I, I play against Larry, you know, in my career, and he's managing the Phillies, and I'm I'm treating him like I'm still a little kid. Like Larry, you know, we're gonna kick your ass for. We're gonna be really nice, and we're gonna get out of here, and you guys can move on with your season. And I had him yelling, <laughs> dropping f bombs on me, and leaving as an adult. I'm like, this is great. But uh, I remember those days. I mean, we had Rocky Balboa walking around the locker room because Rocky had just come out in the mid-70s. I remember one day he introduced himself to me, and it, it wasn't I'm Sylvester Stallone. He goes, hi, Brett, I'm Rocky. I'm like, all right, I guess that's Rocky. He's real. I just saw him on the big screen. <laughs> but, but what a cool time, and how lucky was I? Once again, 
not knowing and being a naive little kid, just thinking this was normal. And every kid gets to do what, what Aaron and myself got to do run around the clubhouse. But oh my God, it was unbelievable. And I, I there was nothing more than just dad, please let me go to the ballpark. Today. <laughs> just put my uniform on and, and go yeah. out and shag. And, and it was different then, you know, Ruley Carpenter was the owner and, there weren't any rules for me. As long as I could prove to the, all the guys I could handle myself out there, they didn't worry about me. You know, they weren't worried about insurance and all that stuff. Nowadays, it's a little tighter as far as kids going out there, but I had kind of carte blanche. I could go out there during BP and take grounders at short with, with BOA. And nobody's saying, get the little kid off. You know, I was seven years old doing it. <laughs> and it was like normal. Ah, Brett's fine. He can handle himself. I say, yeah, I'm fine. Get out of here. <laughs> I mean, it was it was really cool time. It was, and like, think of the epic stuff we got to see, man. Like, think of those games in Pittsburgh against the the, the Willie Stargell, Dave Parker Pirates. Oh. Wow! Like, if you, I mean, that's whatever Steelers Eagles would be now. That's what those games were like in Three Rivers Stadium with fifty thousand people there screaming their lungs out. Unbelievable. The big bad buckos. And, and I told yeah, Parker, were. I told Dave Parker, I said, you guys, as a kid, you guys scared me when you came to town. I said, that was like you were in there to fight and Bly Levin was going to hit somebody. And you got Parker's, Parker Stargell. Uh, I remember that team. Madlock. Manny Sanguian behind the Omar Moreno oh, in yeah. center field with the big with the big afro. It was tremendous. <laughs> but then then the next week, the big red machines coming to town. Right. And uh, even in those late 70s, you remember those Expos had some really good teams. I think they knocked really good. the Phillies out in 79 on the final game of the season. I think I was in Montreal and Carlton was pitching. And I remember as a as a 12 year old kid, I said, oh, this is over. Carlton's pitching. He's the greatest pitcher in the world. The and he Phillies lost. knocked the Phillies knocked the Expos out. If I remember right. Was that 79? I th- I, that's I, it, I'm I'm almost sure that's right because I remember uh, we're gonna have a duel. Like I, of, of, that year's kind of a blur, but yeah. I I remember Carlton winning the last game of the season to knock them out, and the Pirates won. I, that's how I remember. I don't the know. You, got, you might the be. You, gotten, the Phillies were all beat up and we're out of it. You know, and the the Danny Ozark got fired. All hell was all hell was breaking loose there. I think that's what happened. But that was. But you're exactly right about the rest of it. Is even in those days, Stad Olympique, man, those team, those Expos teams were so good, and those games were so tense. Uh, then the then the last weekend of the season in '80, um, I don't have to remind you what happened, but the Phillies go through that that week. They've got to win every game. They got to go to Montreal and win every game, and it happened. Um, like the atmosphere was just insane. Wow. And being a, being a rookie reporter, kind of, what was that like for you? I was talking to, uh, Sweeney Murty and Sweeney mm-hmm. tells a story and ah, I'm kind of getting, I'm sick of telling the story, but it's a fun story. Sweeney said, Booney, I started with the Yankees in 2001 and, uh, you know, I had to come over to the visiting locker room and I'd never met you before. And I said, well, I don't know. This this doesn't sound like it's going in a good place. <laughs> he says, no. He said, I, I was kind of kind of gauging you what the question I was going to ask you. And I, and I walked up to you and I said, hey, Brad, how you doing? And uh, hey, what's your dad up to these days? 
And I turned to him. I said, Sweeney, he's managing the Cincinnati Reds. But other than that, and Sweeney said, Booney, I was so nervous. I didn't know what to say. And I said, well, and that's my way of checking you. Because I, I did that with young reporters all the time. Because I, I had a really good relationship with all the reporters. But if there was a young guy, a new guy in the room, I was going to test him and see how he responded. And uh, if he responded the way I wanted to, I really liked him. But uh, but I wasn't going to make it easy on you. I want to know if you had players that did that to you in the very beginning. And after a while, did you do that? To, did you test players? Did you reverse it on us? Uh, well, I, you know, I kind of alluded to this uh, earlier, but like that team was tough, man. Uh they were they, they just they were a tough team to cover because I, for whatever reason and like this predated me i understood that it predated me i i didn't even think i didn't even take it personally you know it had to do with what i did for a living i didn't feel like it had anything to do with me i have a great relationship with so many of those guys now but you know i was a like i was a kid uh and they all they did was test me it's all they did. They gave me crap about all kinds of stuff. Greg Lazinski gave me crap about using parentheses. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I said, what are you, strunken white? You know, like, uh, this is the kind of stuff that would go on every day. Uh, and some days were fun. Some days were hard. Some days, like, you know, there, there were moments where guys got legit legitimately ticked at me for some stupid thing I would write or say. And like, it could get testy. I don't know if I want to tell all those stories, but like Dickie Knowles, right? Oh, these ought to be good. I remember <laughs> those days of Dickie. Go ahead. Okay. So Dickie Knowles was, you know, he comes up, he was a, you know, he was a, a young pitcher, rookie pitcher, trying to prove himself what was he 22 or three or whatever and he's a guy that knocked down george brett in the world series might have changed the whole world series he played with a chip on his shoulder he had some issues you know he he did he'd be the first to tell you now um but there was a game in st louis i still don't know what was going on Bruni, but uh, after the game he pitches, we gather around his locker and, you know, it's just the usual writer player banner, except if I asked a question, I asked, I'd ask a question. He'd ignore it. I'd ask another question. He'd pretend that I wasn't there. <laughs> okay. So I finally, I ask a question that the third question and he ignores me. And I finally said to him, what's your problem? And he looks me right in the eye and he goes, what's your bleeping problem? And I said, I'd just like to know why you don't answer any of my questions. And he said, I'm not answering any of your questions because I'm not bleeping talking to you. And I said, since when? <laughs> and he said, I haven't talked to you all year. I said, you, you talked to me last week. He said, nope, I haven't talked to you all year. And I said, you're nuts. And he came at me, Booney, like he threw a punch at me. And I ducked out of the way. And uh, the player, I don't know who was at the next locker, but they grabbed him. 
there's like a whole scene, <laughs> people like scattering in all directions. And we almost had a fist fight because uh, over whether or not he was talking to me. Like, this really happened to me. Like, I'm a nice guy. I don't know what I did. Uh, Dickie's a, a, just a sweet, wonderful man now. Uh, I, like, I, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me telling you this, but after I won the Spink Award and I was going in the Hall of Fame, uh, you know, I was roaming around spring training. I was in Clearwater one day and he saw me and he came up to me and he said, I need to apologize to you. I said, what do you mean? He said, look, you told a story once about me throwing a punch at you. And I don't remember doing that, but I had a lot of problems at that time. So if I did that, that was on me. That had nothing to do with you. You're a great guy. You're a great writer. Like you're great at what you do. And so I want you to forgive me for how you, how I treated you as a player. <laughs> like, of, of course I said, you didn't have to do that, but that was, that was kind of life covering that generation of Phillies. Like it was always something because there was so much tension between my profession and their profession. I, 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 if I was responsible for any of it, please tell your dad and everybody else in there. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it, it was probably cool for you. You know, Dickie had to get that off his chest. He's making his amends to you, and you're like, "Of course!" And how cool is this? <laughs> and it's uh, now I'm going to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah. what, what? Just one of those out of body experiences. Pretty cool. There, there Pretty cool. Yeah, that's cool stuff, though. Um, when you were a young reporter, you have anybody that take you under their wing? I mean, I know yes. I did as players. You know, Jay Buhner was my guy. He took care of me when I got to Seattle. Who was your Jay Buhner? Uh, well, at, you're talking about it, a fellow writer and then. Yeah, yeah. someone just kind of showed know, like me you, the ropes. Like you, first of all, just players. Uh, you mentioned Tug. And like, Tug, like I have a lot of fun uh, being around baseball. I write a lot of fun stuff. Tug was a really fun human being who was full of funny lines and there was always something fun going on with him. And so like we gravitated toward each other right away. Like my whole thing when I go into a clubhouse, assuming I ever get into another one is who's the funniest guy in the room. I'm going to go talk to him. And that was, you know, I was tug. And so like, again, I, like I was young and stupid and I, I didn't know the clubhouse etiquette and tug would always tell me, Hey man, we don't like the writers don't do that. Like I didn't know he would like, he would help me navigate the room. I appreciated that. And then like the, the Philadelphia media, I don't like, again, I don't know what you thought of it as a player, but as a kid growing up, uh, that was my, like whatever those, those 76 to 81 Phillies represented to you. That's what the Philadelphia the sports writers represented to me as a kid growing up. As I said, my mom was a writer. And if anybody wrote anything great in the Philadelphia newspapers, which she read cover to cover every day, she made sure I read it, you know, because she knew that's what I wanted to be. So like guys like Stan Hockman, you know, when I was a kid, teenager, I would write to Stan Hockman saying, just 
what I, you know, I want to be a sports writer like you. What about this? What about that? Or I wrote this for my high school paper. I wrote this for my college paper. And he would write back. Like, that was amazing to me. Um, and I've always tried to do that to any young kid who reaches out to me now. Just today, a, a guy that I mentored a little bit, he sent me something he wrote. He's work, working for some little paper in Florida. And it was great. So I wrote, I read it. I wrote back. I told him it was great. Stan Hockman did that for me, man. And that meant the world to me and still does. Um, and then just, you know, I worked with some incredible people. Um, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> but I like Stan Hockman is on my Mount Rushmore. So I'll just leave it at that. Cool. Uh, um, like I, okay, the one one uh, all right one other person. <laughs> uh, this is not a this is not a Philadelphian, but uh, Peter Gammons. You know, and I first moved to New England, and I knew I wanted to be a sports writer, and I knew I wanted to be a baseball writer. I I, I didn't just read Peter; I studied Peter. Peter's now like one of my dearest friends, but uh, like what. Benjamin Franklin represented, you know, to like the, the the Continental Congress or whatever. That's what Peter Gammons represented to modern baseball writing. And so Peter, like Peter was like the first real national writer who like acted like I knew what the hell I was doing. You know, and he always encouraged me and complimented me and cared what I thought and cared what I wrote. And not like nothing that's happened in my life could possibly have happened without Peter being that guy. So I had to mention him, too. Uh, Peter, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, but kind of the, the pioneer of where we're going. 83 yeah. to 89, you produced a uh, baseball weekend review in the Sunday paper. Well, and it was the humorous side of baseball. How did that come about? And and it was ended up being a big hit. Yeah, I actually wrote it for uh, for over fifteen years. Uh, to the point when I went to the it went to ESPN, I kept writing it for a while there. Um, but here's the deal: it was, the column was called Baseball Week in Review, and before I left the beat, became the national baseball writer. Uh, a guy named Peter Pascarelli wrote that column, and it was like literally. Uh, notes column, a review of the week in baseball. And I, I, you know, I, they turned this thing over to me and I said, I don't really want to do it quite that way. <laughs> okay. Like baseball is fun. And, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of characters in the game. There's a lot of unbelievable stuff that happens every day. I want to focus on that. And so like, it took a while for me to kind of nudge it in that direction, but eventually like it became, uh, it became a real thing in in the town and to the point where, you know, I worked for the Inquirer at the time. It was a member of the Knight Ritter uh, newspaper chain. There was a Knight Ritter wire. And somebody told me once that it was the most popular column on the entire Knight Ritter wire to the point where, like, I'll give you an example, like 1998. I started following Mark McGuire around as he was chasing that home run record. And he knew me because he read my column in some paper at Northern California. Like that was a real eye opener to me, you know, that like even players 
wanted to read that column because that was a kind that was the stuff they loved about baseball. Just the funny, wacky, nutty stuff that happened all the time. Like here's a typical thing that I would do with that column. Okay. Uh, Sammy Sosa, whatever year this was, like 97, maybe, I don't know. He hits a home run that flies over the bleachers in Wrigley Field and carries across Waveland Avenue and crashes through the window of an apartment building across the street from Wrigley. So like most people would say, wow, Sammy really got into that one. And I say, I wonder who lives in that apartment. So, so it took like three days, but I chased, I, I, I find the identity of the guy who lived in the apartment and I track him down and I call him and it turns out to be some guy from France and he just moved there and he didn't know a baseball from a beach ball. And this guy was so funny. He comes home from work and there's a baseball in the middle of his living room with all this broken glass. And he had no idea what the hell happened. You know who Sammy Sosa was. So I said to this guy, so Philippe, when you moved into the apartment, you didn't notice there was this big field (laughs) from your apartment. And he said, oh, yeah, I knew that that there was a field across the street. I just didn't know that baseballs would leave the field. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they, they thought there was kid, kids out there playing stickball. I, when you mention that call, because it, it is, and that's the cool side, because as players, you know, we like to be that, oh, we don't care, and, and we don't read that. We Believe me. We, we read a lot of stuff that we don't admit to reading. We're much more aware than people <laughs> think, and we care a lot more than when we say we don't care. But I think that's awesome because it's this game is so serious and and such, especially now the finances are off the charts. It that's the relief and that's the fun side and that's why we all started playing this game when we were th- you know yeah. we were way high. Right. It's right. because and- of that side of the game when it was pure, when it wasn't a big deal, when we went and got a soft pretzel and a and a Slurpee after the game because we just got five hits because we're playing against other eleven year olds. That's when the game for me still to this day some of my fondest memories. Yes, I'm uh, lucky as hell to to play as long as I did and go to a World Series and All Star games and. But some of my fondest memories are just as a kid because it's so innocent. And I remember that that state tournament in Jersey trying to get to the to the uh, Little League World Series and we got beat. But I remember that and I remember how fun it was doing the two a day practices and everybody's. Well, that's fun. You got to go. You know, you played in Yankee Stadium World Series. 19. I said, yeah, that was fine. I said, but Little League, man, that was fun. So I, I think <laughs> your paper, it takes that and it just it shows the game for what it is and why it's yeah. America's pastime. And, and it, it's a really cool thing. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm still doing it. You know, I'm like uh, at the athletic now I'm writing this column called the weird and wild. And it's the same thing. Like It just, it just keeps going because baseball's that kind of game. And, you know, I developed so many great relationships with players through the years, just because players love to laugh, you know, like it, it's, it's way better to be that writer going in the room and asking them some funny question designed to show how funny they are about some goofy thing that just happened yesterday or in the last week and uh, allows them to show their personality. Um, you know, like it's just, it, it's been a really 
fun uh, thing. It became like a just a niche of mine. I really don't know how I came to be that guy, you know, the guy that cares about all the funky numbers like Kirkshin does, and the guy who just writes about the the, the baseball that broke the, the guy from France's window. But like I. That means something to me to be that person and to 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 always show that fun side of baseball. Um, I don't know. It's that's why I love doing what I do, and it's why I love it as much now as I ever did. Two thousand ESPN, and I asked Timmy uh, Kirkjian when I had him on, uh, sports writer that goes to ESPN, and and you mentioned Peter. Gamets. And he was kind of the, the pioneer of, of this movement where the sports writers are now kind of crossing over. And now you're on television and, you, and you're going from the beat to suits and makeup. I, I think maybe Dick Schaap and Lupica had done it, but not the way you guys were now. Um, my, my question is, did you, did you feel any, uh, resentment from the TV guys. And was there any pushback from your fellow sports writers kind of saying you're selling out? If that makes sense, take me into that. <laughs> take me into that world a little bit. Yeah, that's well, kind of the beginning of it all. That's real. That's a really uh, interesting and extremely perceptive topic to, <laughs> to explore. Right? You know, Peter, like Peter Gammons made that possible, uh, that possible. Uh, you know, I've said this many times that everything I've done in my career Peter didn't just do it first. He basically invented it. And so he paved the way for Timmy. And then those guys paved the way for me. And I, I really got hired there because those guys are two of my best friends. And when I see him at big events, you know, we'd always be hanging around laughing about stuff. And I got to know a lot of the, uh, the baseball tonight people just from hanging around with those guys. Um, so it was a, that part of it was a really natural transition uh, it took some doing to, to, to learn how live television worked. That was a little different, but I think I came to figure that out. But the whole, uh, you know, the, the, the topic that you asked about is really interesting because I think about the early 2000s and how fast the world was changing then. Um, like when I first got to ESPN, this is 2000. The, I was the first full-time baseball writer at ESPN.com. The entire site had been done freelance before that. Do you believe that? Like, think about that. This was not 1972, 1947. This is 2000. <laughs> this is, the, the, this is the, the millennia. And there were no full-time baseball writers at ESPN.com until I arrived. And so, like, I had to... I, I I had to carry a lot of weight because I had to wear a lot of hats. I was I was doing baseball tonight shows and I was trying to carry my weight at that site, you know, and just try to keep copy churning. And it was a lot. It was a lot to it was a lot to take on. Uh it was life-changing and awesome. And I'm like, I'm so glad that they hired me and they let me do what I did, but it was a lot. And other like the baseball writers association of America, they didn't know what to make of people like me. You know, like uh, there was a time that um, 
the, the two newspaper baseball writers who went to the internet in 2000 were myself and my good friend, Scott Miller, who used to cover the twins and the Padres. And then, um, went to cbssports.com. And so the Baseball Writers Association threw us out. They made us honorary members because they didn't know what to make of the internet. Like, think about this, man. Again, I'm like, it's 19, it's on 1948. It's 2000. And so uh, there was a lot of confusion about what we were doing, how we were doing it, uh, writing about baseball in, on a 24-7 news cycle in a 24-7 world when newspapers were still stuck in the tomorrow morning world. That has all changed dramatically, but that was a real thing at the time. So like navigating all that, it was a lot. But it, my time at ESPN was so awesome. And I'm so glad that I, I spent 17 years there because – was unforgettable, the friends I made and the stuff I got to do and the people I got to work for and with. 2018, uh, the current. Started writing for The Athletic. Uh, what was that transition like? Well, um, I love working at The Athletic. Uh, it's, you know, unlike any place I've ever worked, it's – it's the most writer-friendly, writer-driven culture of anywhere. You know, uh, like ESPN was great. It was a great place to work. Look, they let me do my thing there, and I'm really grateful that they did. Um, but everything at The Athletic is driven by the principle. We're going to hire the best writers in the world now because we're global, and we're going to let them do their thing. And so they like, I'm not saying they don't have ideas for us, but they like, they have complete faith that we know what we're doing and we're going to write stuff that people want to read. And so go, just go do what we do. And that, so that part is super cool to work at a place like that. Uh, you know, I, I love the people I work with, uh, there's an amazing team feeling there. You know what it's like when you play on a on a team, right? It's not a collection of people. It's a team. We're all trying to help each other and do something great with each other. And, you know, I've been at World Series games that end at 2.30 in the morning. And uh, there's 10 people trying to figure out what we're all going to write. And we don't get in each other's way. You know, you do this. I'll do that. And it's, it's incredible. We all help each other do our thing every day. That's amazing. Uh, my editors are fantastic. My baseball editor, Emma Spann, just loves baseball as much as I do, maybe more than I do. You know, it's just, we're, I'm just surrounded by that. So it's just a, it's been a, just an amazing experience to work there. And I love it. And I'm so glad I was lucky enough to find them. And they were lucky enough to, or I, I was lucky enough that they hired me. Is journalism as thorough now as when you broke in in 79? Uh, what do you mean by thorough? <laughs> Let me ask you that. Um, well, uh, all right, I'll put it a different way. How has it, how, how has covering the game today, other than the internet, that's obvious, boom, people are getting information right now. I remember I'm in the minor leagues, 1990. <laughs> 
And man, I can't wait. I'm playing in the Carolina league. And the whole thing was as soon as the game's over, we get dressed, we eat our hot dog that they have for our spread. And we go back <laughs> to the condo. Cause what are we going to watch? We got to watch sports center. Cause we got to see who, the yeah. big boys, what they were doing. That's how we got our info. And it was cool. And that was new for us. But you know, with the internet now, I mean, you can get anything you want any time of the day. And there's this and there's that. Right. Uh, how has it changed since when you All came right. up to now? Okay. Well, here's the difference. And like I tell kids this all the time when they reach out to me and say, I want to be a writer. Uh, you know, I grew up wanting to write. I wanted to just type those words, man. <laughs> and like, that's not the world we live in now. Uh, we tell the stories so many different ways um, that you have to learn how to tell them every one of those ways. You have to be comfortable talking into a microphone and looking into a camera. Um, you've got to be, you got to be comfortable being a guest on the radio or hosting a radio show. You got to be comfortable talking on a podcast or hosting a podcast. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta write short form and long form. You've got to be comfortable with every different permutation of social media. Um, because that's, how people get the stuff that's how they hear the stories you know if you don't write it and talk about it and tweet about it and post about it and find some great photo that you can post on instagram like that that's all part of how we tell the stories now uh like i think that's really cool i think that's it's fun i think every one of those platforms challenges a different part of my brain and I love that. But like, I think it's a, it's very similar to what you see in baseball now where there's so much information and different kinds of information. And like there's, there's people in the game who think uh, that this stuff is bogus, all the new stats, all the new computer nerds, whatever they think, you know, like, and the fact is, all of it matters. All kinds of information matters in the game. And so I had this talk with Joe Madden once, and he was saying, you know, I tell my friends in baseball all the time, like, you can think whatever you want to think about analytics, data, video, the way we accumulate all information now. But whatever you think about it, you've still got to be open to it, because if you don't you're rendering yourself unemployable. And like, there's a lot of people that I work with along the way who just don't want to do all that, you know? And so like most of them have moved on. They're doing something else now. And I think one of the reasons I'm still doing it is I like all that. So you got like, you live in a 24 seven world. You've got to constantly be aware of that. Um, but I don't think, I, I think the people who think that's an excuse to just throw stuff out there, I think they're making a mistake. I still think being right matters more than anything, especially being fast, because that's the nature of that particular medium. And I think you're right. I think people, I think it's naive for people to dismiss what's going on in the game, whether you're a purist, whether you're, you know, your favorite generation is the 70s, 80s, 90s, two, early 2000s. The game is what it is today. 
the kids playing today, that's where they bring up these unwritten rules. And I say, you know, I thought about it. And when I was asked and shows are calling me to, to, to kind of give my take, I had to think about it. And I said, you know, when I played, there's a certain way we play. It was an eye for an eye. We'd handle it on the field. Yep. And who am I to dictate and to tell the modern day player what are the unwritten rules? The unwritten rules are whatever the modern day and the people on that field right now say the unwritten rules are. And it's not for us as previous pl- previous players to judge. History will judge this generation just like it judges all of our generations. But for me to sit here as a 50-year-old man and say, oh, my generation was – I think that's naive of me. Because that game will run you over and pass you by if you take that. I think you take – you can learn from the modern day. I can learn yeah, from these exactly. analytics, you know, and it doesn't mean I have to buy into each and every analytic, but man, you take my baseball, my baseball pedigree and you put that with some knowledge and some data, man, I'd love playing right now. Oh, cause I always look for that edge and how can I find something and, and to have what right. they have at their fingertips as a player. I'm actually envious of the guys today. Cause it's like, man, what I would do with that data. And it doesn't mean, you know, that I buy into everything. But I think I think it's prudent of you to take 2021 and what we have available, couple it with being a good baseball man and a smart baseball man. That's the ultimate combination. That's where yeah, it's for sure. at. But to just dismiss it as oh, it's not what I like or grew up, I think you're making a mistake. And and it, yeah, we could debate this forever. I debate it with people all the time. You know, my generation, I loved it. It was great. My dad's, I loved it. You know, I love hearing about grandpa, but, but, but I'm learning about today's generation and there are some things, you know, and I pointed out earlier, I said, I I look at my 21 year old son and I go, he'll give me an idea. I'll say, that's really cool. I wish I would have thought about that. So, uh, (laughs) you know, we're always learning and when we think we know it all, uh, we don't. Um, 2019. Right. Highest honor yes. a baseball writer can get, uh, recognized in Cooperstown by winning the Spink Award. That was you. I, I don't know how you received the information. It was it a phone call, but but I want to know when you got that information. Wow, what a day that had to be! Take me through it. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> all right, I got to take a deep breath to even talk about this because that's still the whole thing still gives me chills um all right i was nominated in the i knew i was on the ballot as of july of 2019 in fact when you were recording your podcast with tim kirkshen i was trying to text him to tell him he just got nominated (laughs) okay he's on the ballot and so uh when he got off he told me hey we're just doing this podcast with brett boone so i couldn't answer you but um So I knew I had five months of wondering what would happen when people actually voted. And, you know, I had so many people tell me, you'll win, you know, you'll win easy. Like whatever they like. I was on the ballot with two really great writers, uh, Jim Reeves and Patrick Royce, who had both gotten over 100 votes the year before. I had total respect for those guys. I didn't take anything for granted. I didn't know if I was going to win or not. Then they announce it, Brett, at the winter meetings in December. So go to the winter meetings. They're in Las Vegas. And for three days, everybody's telling me, boy, this is going to be the greatest 
moment of your life. And like, I haven't won anything. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> you know. And uh, so Claire Smith had won before me. And you know who Claire is, right? Uh, and I worked with her at ESPN. I worked with her in Philadelphia. I've known her forever. And she's great. She's a legend in our business. And she made the mistake of telling me that this was on Monday, the day before the announcement, that Jack O'Connell, the baseball writers, the same Jack O'Connell who calls every player who gets elected, he called. He said he called me the night before because he knew how nervous I would be. So just hang loose tonight, whatever you're doing. So I said, okay. So now that night, I went out to dinner with uh, a, a bunch of writers who cover the Phillies, and actually some uh, you know some people who work for the Phillies. We all had this big winter meetings dinner, but I am so nervous. Because I'm thinking, I could get this call any moment. So, like, I'm looking at my phone all night. I was, I don't know, I'm, I must have been really bad company, <laughs> you know, because that's all I could think about. And one hour goes by, two hours go by, three hours go by, no calls, no texts, no emails, no nothing. So now dinner's over, go back and hang around the lobby like we do at the winter meetings. I was so nervous. I said, I got to go to bed. I can't take this. So I go up to my room, nothing. So I try to sleep. I can't hardly sleep. I toss, <laughs> I turn. <laughs> you can only imagine, right? So now I get up the next morning, like, I don't know, 5.45, 6 a.m. Cause I just couldn't sleep. Got up, went to Starbucks. People there saying, all right, is it going to be a big day for you? I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I go back to my room. Uh, nothing. Uh, the meeting's at 10 o'clock. And I'm in my room. It's seven. It's eight. You should know that my daughter, Hallie, uh, after she got out of school, she worked for Major League Baseball. She was actually involved in the Let the Kids Play campaign and a lot of cool stuff. Uh, she She's since moved on. But anyway, she was at the winter meetings. So I called her and I said, you want to come up to my room and keep me company? Because I am I'm, I'm, I'm losing my mind. Okay. So now it's nine o'clock. It's 9.15. I'm thinking, I guess I didn't win. I, I said, I, I think, I guess we better go to the meeting. So we're just pa- like packing up stuff, getting ready to leave. And now the phone rings, but it's not my cell phone. It's the landline. It's the room phone. Like who calls you on the room phone now? Housekeeping? <laughs> you know? So I answered and it's Jack O'Connell. And he says, Jason, thank God you're there. Thank God you answered the phone. I went to call you and I realized I didn't, I don't have your cell number in my phone. So I gave him crap about that. We laughed about it. And he said, oh, by the way, this is what's known in the trade as the call. Congratulations. You have just won the Spink Award and I'll see you in Cooperstown in July. And it was the coolest thing, man. It's like, one of the most unforgettable moments of my lifetime uh, to hear those words, to think about the journey. My daughter was there like video and the whole thing. Um, so, you know, called my wife. Then we, uh, we FaceTimed with my, my other two kids and it was just this incredible experience to, to share it. And now like they tell you, don't tell anybody till they announce it. So now I have to go to this meeting 
Uh, and people are acting like, well, what's going to happen in your election? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> you know <it's>, now, <laughs> How like, was your now, poker face? Yeah, right. Uh, I don't know. I, you have to ask everybody else. But they announced it at this at the baseball writers meeting. And there was a there was a standing ovation. And I got up and just talked from my heart for maybe two, three minutes about what it meant to me to be a baseball writer and what our profession meant to everybody in the room. And then after that, like, all right, it's cool enough to have this happen to you. I want you to imagine you, you find out this news while you're in a place where you literally know everybody, like a thousand people. I knew them all, okay? And so, like, I could have just set up shop in the lobby and hugged people all day long for the next two days. I didn't get any work done. <laughs> all, all I did was say, thank you. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, like, that, that, those, that's how those few days went in my life. Uh, it's just seriously one of the coolest things that ever happened to me. And, like, that was before I even ever got to Cooperstown. But that was just an amazing slice of time, as you can just imagine, right? Special, special place. And I know you're involved in the Hall of Fame quite a bit. You know, not only a voter, uh, but you're, you're, I think you're part of special committees. What's that been like? And the question I really want to ask was, uh, you know, as a player, and, and of course, I've never voted for the Hall of Fame. But as a player, you know, they give us a little, they throw us a bone once in a while and they give us the, you know, player's choice. And at the end of the year, uh, you know, I'll get a ballot. And and it was always easy for me because, you know, not everybody you play with, not everybody you play against is always your favorite. It could be the way they walk, the way they talk. You just don't like them. Some guys, you just think he's a clown. Some guys, I really respect him. But I'll tell you, when I got that ballot at the end of the season and it, I took it serious and, and not that it was that important what Brett Boone writes down on a piece of paper, but I took it serious and it didn't matter whether it was my least favorite player in the game or, or my best friend in the game. I put down on that paper mm -hmm. who deserved the award. Do you find in the voting process through your career, because you've done a lot, that there are people around that, that do hold grudges, that, that do not vote for other reasons than just what he did on the field? Um, there's a lot of voters. <laughs> yeah. know, there's over 400 voters. Right. And like it's, this is America, man. Uh, so just like people step in the voters' booth to vote for mayor or dog catcher with all kinds of different ideas in their heads. That's what writers do when they fill out their hall of fame ballots. And I, I, I would say that the writers have done a really good job for the most part. Um, most of the people uh, that I'm close to all the people that I'm close to take it incredibly seriously. Um, do, do I think that everybody gives it the, the time that they should and, um, put puts in the, the the amount of work that I put in. I'd say probably not. You know, there are people that have gimmicky ballots that I'm not a fan of. But like it's America. This is this is what we're doing here, uh, and people can vote 
the way they feel like they need to vote. That's not how I vote. Um, I mean, you refer to those committees. So like there's, I've, I have three different hall of fame experiences. Um, one is just as an annual voter every, every December. Um, I get that ballot. I don't vote right away. I know people who fill it out that day, just whatever comes into their head. This guy's a Hall of Famer. This guy's not. Or I want Derek Jeter to go in alone, so I'm only voting for him this year or whatever. Like, I don't vote that way. Every single name that appears on that ballot is somebody who had a hell of a career. They may not even get elected. They may not live to see a second you're in the ballot. I guess you know kind of what that's all about, right? But <laughs> I do. They, I do. <laughs> you know, like they they deserve my time. I take time to look at every single player and try to take in the totality of their career. Um, you know, and eventually, like I, I have a bunch of names that I write down of players that to me are Hall of Famers or really deserving of a of an even closer look. The other thing that I try to do is not play games. I, you know, I the way I really prefer to vote is you look at that ballot, you go through the process, you just you have to answer one question. Was this player a Hall of Famer or not? And if that answer is yes, we should vote for that guy every single year as long as he's on the ballot if he doesn't get elected you vote for him every year be consistent don't play those games you know i i'm not you know i know i voted for these eight guys last year but i want ken griffey jr to go in by himself this year so i'm not voting for any of them this year i like i don't do that what's made it's made it hard is the ballot for a while there got really jam-packed because of the you know the, the the bonds clemens group that would, they never got elected, but they were back for more every year. And so like at that point, I had to play some ballot management games that I hated playing, but I were only allowed to vote for 10. I might have had 12. I might have had 14. Every years I had 15, 16 players I thought sh- sh- were Hall of Famers. And, you know, that was really terrible to have to do that. I'd have to say, I need to vote for this player because it's his first year on the ballot. And I'm not sure he'll have a second year. I got to make sure he gets 5%. Or I, I really think this this guy's a Hall of Famer, but I know he's not getting elected this year. So I need to vote for this guy instead. And like, th- that's horrible to me. We should just vote, is he or isn't he? But that's a whole other story. So that that's how I fill out my ballot. It's an agonizing process. Uh, like there, there have been years I we have till December 31st. I don't send it in till December 31st. Like, that's just me. I I take the time because everybody on that ballot deserves that time. So that's one connection of mine to the Hall of Fame. Second connection is, you mentioned this, uh, a few years ago, I was a member of the, uh, the the Modern Era Committee, or the Modern, Modern Game Committee. I forget exactly the name of it. The Modern Era Committee. But anyway, we, have, we elected uh, Jack Morris and Alan Trammell to the Hall of Fame. And that was a phenomenal experience. There are only 16 of us in the room. Uh, not a lot of sports writers in the room. There was me and one other guy, Bob Elliott, who's a Spink Award winner. And uh, then also Steve Hurt from the Elias Sports Bureau at that time. The three of us were kind of the 
information people in the room. And then we were surrounded by Hall of Fame players and just legendary executives, John Sherholtz and Bobby Cox uh, and Sandy Alderson, you know, and it was incredible. Just an amazing experience because like, here was my role. I spent so much time on the players who were on that ballot. Also Marvin Miller was on uh, so that like when they would say the name, everybody in the room would look at me or look at me and Steve and say, what do you guys think? And so I would present the case for every player and say, here's why you could believe this player was a hall of famer. Here's what, here's why he didn't get elected as best I I can see it. And then I would say, all right, here's, here's what, here's why people didn't vote for this guy. And I could look George Brett right in the eye and say, George, what did you see? You know, and it was an incredible experience because those players, George Brett and Robin Young and Eck and Dave Winfield, like we had an amazing group that had played against every one of these players or played with them. Don Sutton was there. And, and they would give you such insight from a player's brain. It was fantastic, Booney. I loved that. Uh, and we elected Morris. We elected Trammell. And like that, like that was incredible <laughs> that, that, you know, no matter what had happened along the way when they were on the writer's ballot, that was amazing. Uh, we had a really long conversation with Ted Simmons, who was one and done on the writer's ballot. And when those Hall of Fame players talked about the Ted Simmons they played against, like that changed the room. Um, and I think Ted Simmons missed by one vote our year, got elected the next time. He's 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 going to have his induction day this September. And a lot of that had to do with what happened in that committee. It was an unforgettable experience. And then, like, the third thing is, uh, like, I'm now, I don't know how to put this. I, like, I'm now kind of in the club. You know, like, when I, when I got to Cooperstown in 2019, Wade Boggs walked up to me in the bar at the Otisaga Hotel and stuck out his hand and said, welcome to the club. You know, and those players accepted me like I was one of them. You know, Jim Tomey took me under his wing that whole weekend and took care of me. And I said to him, look, Jim, I'm well aware you hit 600 home runs more than I hit, you know. But uh, to, to have that experience, the way those players treated me, um, you know, the relationships that I had with so many of them was incredible. And then to, 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 look, to, to be in that room and look around and see who else was in the room, Hank Aaron was in that room, you know, and I went up and introduced myself to Henry Aaron because I didn't know him, but I thought, I, I don't get this opportunity very much. I'm going to get a chance to talk to Henry Aaron right now. But like when I realized who was in that room, I thought, what am I doing here? What did I do to deserve being in this room? So like I got it from my chair. I was sitting at this table with Ken Griffey, uh, the people from the Hall of Fame. Uh, who are the other players there? But it was an, it was an amazing conversation. But like I had this out-of-body moment, this, this, this out-of-body experience where I realized I am in the room with the greatest players who ever lived. And so I got up, I walked 
over to one corner of the room and I just kind of took it in, like you just said. And I, like, I thought I got to take a walk just to breathe. So I thought I'm going to walk down the hall of the men's room. So I started walking down the hall and Jeff Bagwell starts walking right alongside me. And he says to me, how are you doing? <laughs> I said, you know what? I'm doing great. But I just had this moment where I looked around the room and I thought, I, I don't know that I've done anything to deserve to be in this room. And he said, oh, yeah, I know just what you mean. I feel that way, too. And I said, wait, you feel that way? Like you realize you're a Hall of Famer, right? And he said, yeah, I know I'm a Hall of Famer, but I don't feel like I'm a Hall of Famer the way these guys are Hall of Famers. And like there is some of that. Like you're in a you're you're in a room with legends, man. And then like these are the legends of the game. And also, I'm in the room. <laughs> that's that's just unbelievable to me. Uh, so, like those are my three connections to Hall of Fame players. I voted for them. I voted with them, and then I've been that guy who got elected, being treated like I was one of them. All three of those experiences are among the greatest things that can happen to somebody like me when they start to go, when they dream about covering baseball. And I'll say this again, like I'm doing that thing that I always dreamed of doing from the time I was like 10 years old. And like my picture's in the Hall of Fame forever. I don't have a good concept of what forever is. (laughs) You know, like I can't. Imagine people walking through that place in 400 years and they're stuck with looking at my picture and reading my story. But like, Booney, this happened to me. It's amazing. And so I don't take any of that for granted. And I think you mentioned those committees. And and what's so cool to me when I look at the whole process is, yeah, you, you talk about sometimes there's ballot and it's there's games that are played. And by the time you get to that veterans committee, you know, probably, and this is how I'd guess, the games probably cease to exist. And it's more of a, let's let's right a wrong, or, or, or if we think we missed something here, let's really grind this out. And and I saw that because I, I got, you know, Trammell, I played against him when I was a kid coming up, and he was at the end of his career. But he was a coach of mine the one year I was in San oh, Diego. Yeah. And then I saw Tram on his day. And I'll tell you, the appreciation – I think as we all get a little bit older, we get a little more sentimental. We get a little more emotional. You know, I live with a dad that that gets tears in his eyes when his grandkid gets a base hit in a gap. <laughs> but but to to hear, you know, and I've I've interviewed and and I've, a lot of my buddies are Hall of Famers and they tell the story and it's it's. But when Tram told me the story, it was like you know he was buried, gone, dead. He was never going to be a Hall of Famer. Now years go by and he has a coaching career and. One day he's on that ballot again, but, but he's been, you know, he, he didn't make it the first time. So he's, his expectations aren't anywhere. And he told the story to me when he got the call, I said, Boney, I couldn't even believe it. He said, it's still not real. He said, it's ridiculous. That was, that story was dead and buried years ago, but the appreciation I saw from that, I didn't get to talk to Jack, uh, but I assume it's similar and I assume it's similar with all the veteran committee hall of famers. So those are kind of my favorite, the, the guys that, man, they've been waiting 50, 40 years for this thing. And it finally happened. It, and right. not that it's not special, no matter what the highest honor in, in what you did for a living, but 
to get it on the second time. Like when you, when you thought it'll never happen to, to have it hey, happen. We, like those awful. guys were on the ballot for 15 years. We put those players through 15 years of torture. And, and like <laughs> your story, only the call never came. Yes, that's yeah. exactly right. Think yeah. how close Jack Morris was and yeah. never got elected by the writers. Like yeah. that, nobody, nobody gets that close and without getting elected except him. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that, like, that's hard. That is hard. And this is a guy, like, he got, what, I think he got 73% one year. If you got 73% in the dog catcher election, you know what they call that? A Rounded landslide. Up. <laughs> <laughs> like, 73% in the Hall of Fame election is, hey, good luck next year. Oh, yep. God. Yep. So, it's hard. All the things you've done in career, uh, man. <laughs> TV, sports writer, Hall of Fame. You've done a lot of radio, and I know you have a fondness for that. What are you most proud of in your career? Well, I, 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 don't, know, I don't know how there's any other answer other than Cooperstown. You know, that was – having that happen to me, it still sometimes doesn't feel real. Um. You know, we had an incredible induction weekend. We had over a hundred people come from all over the country, just for me, man. Um, like there were people t there who were pretty sure that more people came just for me than anyone else that who got in that year. Like that was Mariano and <laughs> Edgar, and like just the thing is, you know, because I I I I, I had a, a connection to people. In, inside the game and outside the game in so many different ways, like that kind of explained it, you know, I knew everybody. <laughs> and so that, that weekend, that induction weekend, that was memories of a lifetime, memories for a lifetime, but not just for me, for those hundred and whatever people who I love and care about. And then like, it just races by. It's so unreal that, Right, that was July. That January, my wife and I took a trip to Cooperstown when nobody was around. And we went through the Hall of Fame and we got to that writer's wing. And there was my picture hanging there in my little black thing, whatever it is. And we looked at each other and went, holy crap, this really happened. <laughs> like it didn't feel real until all those months later when we went back and saw it. And, you know, because of the pandemic, that plaque's been hanging there for two years. They're just taking it down this week. And so for two years, I've had people would go to visit Cooperstown and see it and text me photos of it. And as recently as the last week and a half, uh, two friends saw it and like, it, it's amazing. I don't, I, I've done a lot of stuff. I love being a baseball writer. I love covering baseball. I love being part of the baseball community. Uh, I have so much respect and, and love and admiration for everybody in it. But I, like for the next billion years, my picture is going to be in that place, in the Magic Kingdom. And how lucky am I, man? Just think about that. Pretty awesome. Jason Stark, Hall of Famer, 
Jason Stark. Thank you for coming on the pro. This this is a lot of fun for me. It was a pleasure. And as we do each and every time on the Boone podcast, we bring in the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, with a question from the fans. Dan. Gentlemen, how are you? Hello, Dan. (laughs) All right. This question comes from Jeff in Kansas City, and he wants to know this. Who do you read every day, and what is your favorite baseball book? Who do I read every day? Boy, we have some incredible baseball writers out there right now. Um, You know, I read like the my first the first thing I read every morning is the Athletic because I need to see what Ken Rosenthal has written, and I need to see what Peter Gammons has written. And I need to see what Joe Posnanski has written and Eno Saris. And like, I, I don't know when, I don't know where to stop here. We have, we have an incredibly talented group that I'm proud to work with. Uh, I still read my friends at ESPN. I read Tim Kirkshin. I read Buster Olney. Uh, you know, you have to read Jeff Passan there, right? Um, I read the, the guys who cover the Phillies, because they're my friends, Jim Salisbury and Todd Zalecki and Scott Lauber and Matt Breen and Matt Gelb, read them all religiously. Uh, since you're from Kansas City, uh, I love reading Sam Mellinger. Love it. Love reading Rustin Dodd, who now works with us at The Athletic. Um, those are, these are just incredibly talented people. And now what's my favorite baseball book? This is hard because I have so many, but let me, like, I'm going to tell you one that people don't talk about enough. It's just really fun. Like I'm fascinated by Ted Williams because who isn't? And I love the Lee Montville bio of Ted Williams. Um, I recommend it to everybody that it's just one eye popping tale after another of one of the most fascinating people ever to pass through our sport. So like I could tell you all the the usual books, please read that book. It is great. Does that work? That works. And thank you so much for coming on the Brett Boone podcast, but we appreciate it. (laughs) Hey, Dan, Brett, I honored that you invited me, man. Thanks. Um, Brett, you did great work being ready to ask me about all this crazy stuff that's happened to me. So great, great job. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate it, Jason. Thanks for doing it, man. Mailbag. All right, Brady, you know that sound. Uh, mailbag time, Dan. Mailbag. This one comes from Ralph in Half Moon Bay. Brett, are you believing in the Giants yet? Wow. I'm believing, yeah, I believe in them as a uh, postseason team. They're still not going to win the division. Wow. Okie dokie. Back in we go. Brett Kendra from L.A. What do the Dodgers need to do with the trade deadline? Well, I think the biggest thing right now is is surrounding uh, Trevor Bauer and what's going to happen. Um, Trevor Bauer comes back to the team. They need to do nothing. They can always bolster their bullpen a little bit. Uh, that's the big X factor and whether Bauer's uh, if and when he's coming back. All right, that is going to do it for this year, Brett Boone Podcast. Well, my name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical producer, technical director, and the voice of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. 
Digital content is all handled by the lovely Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here at the Boom Podcast, he's Brett Boone. I'm Dan Levy. See you guys next time.